Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerdette Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except sometimes the author stops by. It is the month of October, and our selection is Lauren Groff's newest novel, The Vaster Wilds. It is about a servant girl in early American colonial history who flees her corrupt and smallpox-riddled settlement and has to struggle to survive in the wilderness. This book is a meditation on ugliness and misery and strife and mortality and deep, deep isolation, but it also balances a remarkable eye for beauty and grace and peace. Lauren, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So I would love to start with your research process because you are speaking very much of a specific time period, but also kind of not at all, which is a really fascinating balance. But I mean, like, how much did you actually research early American colonial history with this one? Well, hey, my research process is absolutely bonkers because (laughs) I love the archive. I think it's one of the most exciting places on the planet, right? And it's full of just surprising and amazing things. All these details that actually bring a a very vague and sort of amorphous idea into the concrete real Mm. world. So it's so exciting to get in there and dig. Uh, I did a lot of just primary source uh, research because there's a lot actually, believe it or not, online. I mean, um, for instance, John Smith's, all of the the writings that he, he wrote, I mean, you can read them with the uh, S's that look like F's and like the misspellings, right? Like, it's really extraordinary and fun. Um, and, you know, I read a lot of early American captivity narratives. I read um, a lot of secondary uh, sources that sort of commented upon and, and con- recontextualized a lot of the primary mm. sources. And then I did my absolute favorite thing, which is I went back to Shakespeare because, of course, Shakespeare is still alive at this time in London. And I wanted to get a a taste of the Elizabethan language, Mm. the rhythms and the neologisms and the the kind of the wild way that metaphors sort of unroll, which I think is very different from the way that we think in metaphors now. So, uh, you know. I could have spent another 20 years researching, mm. and um, but at some point you just have to say you have vast gaps in your knowledge, but you're just a novelist, right? Like you're not a historian. <laughs> you're not getting a PhD in this. Uh, go for it. Oh my God, that's so funny. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you mention Shakespeare because I feel like that I think of them as being so disconnected, early American history and what's happening in England at the same time, which is probably just my own gaps in knowledge. But I think it, is really interesting to think about just your word choice throughout this book. I mean, there are so few proper nouns. You're using so many epithets. We never know exactly where a protagonist is running away from. We do learn her name eventually, but for the most part, she's just the girl. How else did you get in that sort of meditative voice state? 
Well, so funnily enough, um, I, I write in drafts. I mean, this is just part of my process. Mm-hmm. I like write lots of really messy, ugly drafts and throw them out and start over again. <laughs> and one of the early drafts, I thought, wouldn't it be fun if I were to write in all I am's? <laughs> like wow. Like a Shakespearean. Um, and that was the most fun I've ever had writing anything <laughs> at all in my entire life. Should we like, explain what an I am is gonna... just for the for the people out there who haven't taken English lit yeah, in a long time? Yeah, like it's poetic rhythm. Like it's, it's the it's, you know, meter da-da, that da-da. you find, right, <laughs> that you find in all of Shakespeare, right, in, in like a lot of the, the language of the time. And the, the thing that I love so much about I am's is that it's um it's a little bit unbalanced, so it feels as though you're sort of hurtling headlong into um, a line, right? Mm. It's sort of it's like pushing you forward, and that's really what this book is, right? It's mm. a propulsive book that where a girl is running, she's running desperately um, away and toward something, and both of those things come clear um, only over the course of the book. So I really wanted it's sort of like a propulsive. Um, metrical rhythm in the lines. I also love the lack of proper nouns because I think it speaks to something that you address in the book too, which is that idea that, you know, naming something is kind of a way to dominate it. You know, Adam naming plants and animals in the Bible, colonists naming the land, for example. Oh yeah. No, I mean, I think about this all the time because I impose my, the names that I really liked upon my own children. Mm. (laughs) I think, you know, that's not really fair that we do that to our kids. They should be able to choose at some point, but you have to be able to call them something mm-hmm. until they're able to choose. So, you know, but it does feel, it does feel a little bit um, domineering if, or, I mean, yeah. you know, there are people who choose not to name their children until they can choose their own names because they think it's a, like a fascist um, um, act. And I don't disagree. It's just that the practicality yeah. is really complicated. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. You also have some really beautiful depictions in this book of, I think you phrase it as the people who were born to this land. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the indigenous peoples. Yeah. How did you, were you able to read firsthand documents from their points of view? How did that work? So that's really complicated, right? Because yeah. um at the time, I mean, there weren't many, if any, that I know of, um, that were first-hand documents mm-hmm. from their point of view, right? Uh, th- this is one of those horrific and devastating gaps in the archive that occur, you know, throughout history. Whoever is not considered the victor doesn't get to write history. Mm-hmm. Well, course. and especially if they don't know how to write, and if the only way they do learn how to write is when they're that's imposed on them in a really horrific way too, right? Exactly. And I mean, I think a lot of the cultures were oral storytelling cultures. I mean, it's a very rich literary history. It just wasn't written down for Europeans to be able to to understand it and then memorialize it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the Europeans coming to the New World were not all that curious. You know, they didn't see them as equals for sure, right? Because right? they're mm-hmm. coming to, to steal the land and to kill mm-hmm. them, uh, which is horrific. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think yeah, there was just not interest. There's not enough interest in sort of uh, maintaining or or creating a, an opportunity to preserve a lot of the the stories in in um, written in the written archive, which is hard. So um, I mean, you have to think about these things as you're writing books like this, right? Because you you really need to be as sensitive and thoughtful as possible. Um, I did talk to a number of 
people who are indigenous now. And I did talk to a number of like scholars who, you know, look at the time and really paid a great deal of attention to sort of what was not being said. I mean, there's this incredible cultural historian named Sadia Hartman, whom I think about a lot. Um, and she's, you know, she's ostensibly writing, um, she is writing nonfiction. She's a MacArthur genius. She is a genius. Um, but she does <laughs> these things called critical fabulation. Ooh. where she um, will go into the gaps in the archive. And, and for her, it's, in particular, it's, um, it's enslaved young women um, who maybe have had names uh, set down in the archive, but then their lives are not considered interesting enough to sort of uh, to, to keep forever, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the ideas and like the, the circumstances of their lives aren't considered interesting enough. And then she will, through rigorous research, build up, a plausible life. Um, and it's in it's in some ways it's fiction, but in some ways it's really filling in sort of the the places that have been left like lace work in actual history, not just um, recorded history, but like the the actual history of of human beings who lived on the planet. Uh, so I was thinking about all of this when I was trying to, you know, react with subtlety and nuance to the Aboriginal peoples of um, the United States of America. That's really cool. You must have studied local flora and fauna too, I imagine, right? I did. I did. Oh my gosh. And, you know, my gaps in knowledge are so severe and profound, but I really love it, right? I love to go into the woods and know, you know, 70% of what I'm seeing and how it can be used. Um, but I, you know, I will never have a comprehensive, like an encyclopedic understanding of the natural world. I wish I, I wish I could. Mm. I mean, 70% is pretty amazing. I don't think I could even do that. Is it that. though? I mean, sure. No, I I appreciate that. But especially the use. I mean, I just, it's like, oof, I got nothing, you know, that's bad. Well, I got very little. (laughs) Yeah. I think I'd be like, I'd be, maybe I could make my family survive for a couple of months in the winter, but then we'd all be croaking. Oh my God. (laughs) I could see after reading this book, especially after writing this book, never wanting to camp again. (laughs) I mean, it's so intense. I like camping a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's take a quick break and then we will talk more about the Vaster Wilds with Lauren Groff. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org events. So there are a lot of different descriptions of meals that the girl scavenges. Um, Many of them are pretty gross. If you had to eat one, which one would you eat? Oh, there's some really lovely ones too. Yeah. 
if you're starving to death, uh, any meal is probably going to be pretty okay, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I think the first fish that she finds frozen is oh, the water, yeah. right? That's almost like like a gift from God um, that she discovered and sort of chips out of the ice. And just the, the, the feeling of being satiated after being so hungry for so long, I think that that one in particular would have felt like a miracle, like a, like a genuine um, bounty mm. from the skies. So I, that one, I would choose that one. Also, I really like sushi and basically like raw fish is <laughs> sushi. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> no. <laughs> nope. I think one thing that makes this book so interesting is the fact that, you know, when I think about survivalism and like people being out in the wilderness, it's, it's often about a dude making that work. And I think especially the fact that she's, you know, like a young woman makes this one really interesting because she not only has to fear for her, she has to fear for her own survival in a number of different ways that not everyone with different privileges would have to. Yeah, I find it so confusing that we've allowed um, hypermasculinity to take over the frontier narrative, mm, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. Right? I mean, if you think of any kind of frontier narrative from like cowboys and like uh, um, to, uh, I don't even know, like Mars stories, yeah. right? We, yeah. we consider them somehow to be the realm of men when we know that that is not necessarily the case. Right. I mean, um, you know, the frontier narrative has a lot of really horrendous um, attributes to it, like stereotypical attributes to it. I mean, it's misogynistic. It's genocidal. It's um, it's it's deeply patriarchal. It's deeply hierarchical. Right. It's like it's anti nature. I mean, there are a lot Mm -hmm. of really Mm -hmm. horrible things. But so why can't we take a look at the frontier narrative and. Um, push against the status quo and try to make something that is actually resistant or subversive to sort of the status Mm. quo and this idea of what we think of as um, the Western or the frontier narrative. Um, And I think that a lot of people are doing that now, which, which makes me so happy, right? I'm thinking of like, see Pam Shang with her. um, That was the exact one I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah, or Hernan Diaz with his first book, In the Distance, right? Like, these are, like, mm-hmm. these things, like, flip the frontier narrative over and gut it <laughs> and, and actually, like, call attention to the the injustice and the, the radical, um, uh, I guess, uh, misery caused by, by this male-oriented narrative that yeah. we've all bought into. Yeah. So how do you think spending this much time in 17th century America changed your perspective about it now? Oh, well, (laughs) (laughs) I have a lot to say about that. Um, You know, I just spent um, six months in Germany, which was one of the greatest things my family and I have ever done. And from a distance, from across the ocean, uh, the problems of America seem so bonkers Mm. so (laughs) self-inflicted right so horrifically small-minded and small based in a tiny amount of imagination um and you know coming back here just made me extraordinarily sad because I can see that 
a lot of the things that we struggle with now come out of this this um, frontier mindset, mm-hmm. right? This, this this Western expansionism, this idea that um, it, it is humans against nature. I mean, why do we have lawns? Right? <laughs> lawns totally. Right. We are fighting nature to tame it and domesticate it. It makes no sense to me. Right. Even it's something that's small and that that seemingly hyper masculine. It seems it it seems insane to me. Yeah. But up to like gun culture. Right. I mean, that comes out of sort of the swaggering, laconic cowboy myth as well. Right. Or this ideal of radical isolationism, like humans being only individuals as opposed to the reality, which is. We are a complicated weave, um, necessarily a weave of community, right? And um, all of our communities have to interact and we have to actually support them, not as individuals, but as parts of the whole or else um, we are all going to die. Right? I mean, like, that, so all of these things come out of um, a lot of the the primary narratives we told ourselves way back when, especially English and Spanish peoples uh, started to colonize the new world. Um, and we just haven't broken those narratives yet. And it, it drives me crazy, right? Yeah. We've had centuries to come up with better stories and we haven't done it. Mm. And it's, it, it's wild. It is wild. I remember thinking about that on a high speed train in France several years ago and just like, why can't, why don't we have this in America? And then it was like, Oh, because cars, we have to have cars, you know, and then we have to have drive through and it's all, it's that individualism of it all. Right. It's like, what's that American dream of, no, you have the two car garage and you have two cars in it and that's how you get yourself around. And God forbid, if you wanted to use a train to get anywhere, you know? I mean, we tell the story that we are um, democratic as a nation, Mm. but we are deeply invested in feudalism. <laughs> I think we Fuck. are, right? I mean, <laughs> we are still stuck in the Middle Ages, right? And I think part of it is, like, we allow um, corporations and billionaires to, like, rule us, right? Because we think it's the natural of order order of things. We mm-hmm. think that we need to be dominated as a, as a people. And it's so crazy to me. <laughs> anyway, yeah. you're completely right. I think we're on the same page here. Ugh, wow. The feudalism yeah. thing. That's that. You just really fucked me up. You're not wrong, but I hadn't thought about it in that context. And now oh, I'm going to go back to bed. I think I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. I think one of the things that I loved most about the Vaster Wilds is that it's such a lovely reflection on both the beauty and brutality of nature. I mean, you have this phrase in it, a wholly indifferent beauty, which I kind of can't stop thinking about because it's so fascinating that idea that there's all this loveliness around us and our lives are better when we see it, but it kind of doesn't give a fuck about us. (laughs) Oh yeah. No, it's indifferent. Yeah. I mean, right. It's indifferent until we decide to be, um, in partnership with it. Mm. Right. If, if, right. So, I mean, I think, Anyone who has camped understands that you can't like hate camping and want and have a good time. <laughs> you have to embrace, embrace sort of the hardship and embrace the beauty at the same time yeah. in order to sort of work your way through into this place of acceptance and understanding. Um, so yeah, I, I what I really really wanted for this book was uh, this girl suffers hardship, of course, right? And she, anyone lost in the woods trying to get somewhere, she doesn't even know where it is is going to be suffering at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's profound physical suffering, but there's also profound 
ecstasy, right? Because mm-hmm. I, ecstasy and suffering exist on the same plane, I believe. Or, you know, on one end is like extreme suffering, on the other end is extreme ecstasy. And they're actually closer than one could imagine. I mean, some of my research into medieval mystics for Matrix yes. um, brought me to this understanding, right? And in some ways, this girl is very much a, a sister of those medieval mystics. Um, but the same thing exists within nature, right? The 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 absolute brutality um, and the unbelievable beauty coexist in the same moment always. Yeah, and that's something to to carry around with awe and and um, love and uh, astonishment. I think. I think so too. I think you captured it so gorgeously, and I'm just so grateful for it because it really was just. Such a pleasure. So you mentioned Matrix, the book you wrote before this, which is, yes, about a medieval nun. I had a really fun conversation with a friend of mine who also happens to be named Lauren a while back where I was describing the Vaster Wilds to them. And they were like, I think with Lauren Groff, it's going to take us 20 years before we can look back on the scope of her work and, and actually understand how the fuck she's pulling all this stuff off, which I just thought was such a delightful assessment of your work so far. And I was just really curious, like how you describe the scope of what you're doing, because you really are, you're covering a lot of really interesting ground. I'm either blushing really hard. or I'm having a hot flash. I don't know which one it is. Um, that's um, yeah, I, you know, I am engaged in the act of um, questioning givens, mm. oh. <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm engaged in the act of sort of exploding um, our stories that we have been telling ourselves to comfort ourselves because I think stories are not meant, art is not meant to comfort. I, I believe mm. art is meant to derange um, and to, <laughs> to make uncomfortable and to make um, the things that are unjust that we are taking for granted or we are accepting blindly or not blindly, but, uh, you know, without questioning. Yeah. Um, to take those things and to shake them um, and to sort of earthquake things. So I, I think the, I am I am trying to question a lot of um, hierarchies mm. and um, especially God-given hierarchies, mm-hmm. religion-given hierarchies. Mm-hmm. Um, that is sort of my chase right now. And who knows where I'll go in the future, but that's what feels really urgent because I trace the Anthropocene and the... Um, Basically, how we are at the cusp of absolute disaster, um, Mm. irretrievable disaster, all the way back to a misunderstanding of God um, and the way that religion has brought us these stories that are false stories and are are ugly stories that are going to ruin us all. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't have any like shorthand. I just, you know, I go after the things that feel urgent and angry to me. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm driven by rage. <laughs> so uh, when the rage runs out, the stories will run out. Oh my rage. God. So is there a genre or topic that you'd like to rage about more? Oh yeah. But I can't tell you. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I can't wait. I'm along for this ride, Lauren. (laughs) Thanks, Greta. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on. This really was such a pleasure. It was so fun for me. Thank you so much for having me.
All right, y'all, you know the drill from here. Read the book and then tell us what you think about it. You can record yourself on your phone and then email that file to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you are listening to this episode, that means you are a book lover. And I think you should know we had an episode on Friday that had a bunch of fall book recommendations in it. And believe it or not, we actually had to edit a lot of them out and we're including those in this Friday's newsletter. So that means if you haven't already signed up for the Nerdette newsletter and you are interested in knowing all of the books that people recommended, now is a great time to sign up for it. You can find a little sign up link if you go to wbez.org slash Nerdette. Nerdette is produced by me and Anna Bauman at WBEZ in Chicago and is part of the NPR network. And our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. We will see you on Friday. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.